Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 24, Another British Empire. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to a myth about the poet's curse. And here's a small sample of what's going on. In ancient times, the Druids held complete dominion over the history of the people, as well as their sacred rites. As they were forbidden from writing down their secrets, all their history and religion was taught and practiced out loud. I think it's entirely likely they would have used rhyme and meter to aid their memorization, like many other cultures have done. And so even after Druidism was snapped out, even after the old ways were burned, cut down, and forced into obscurity, some things held. Maybe they didn't know where the superstitions came from, but they knew that the poets were fearful people and not to be trifled with. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Belinda, John, and Nathan for signing up already. All right, let's get going on this. And let's talk about Diocletian really quick. Diocletian claimed that he was divinely appointed by Jupiter, and that he was essentially the hand of Jupiter on Earth. Members know this might not have been that shocking to the ancient Celts, since many of their chiefs and monarchs likely had claimed the same divine appointment. But this divinity thing was certainly shocking for Rome. So why do it? Well, as we've been talking about for months now, emperors were consistently getting tossed out of power by legions. They relied upon the Senate and the legions to establish their right to rule. And Diocletian wanted to do away with that. After all, if the Senate and legions would declare that you were legitimate, they could also declare that you were illegitimate. So he declared that his legitimacy descended from the gods. And you could kill a tyrannical leader without much of a problem. People had been doing that for centuries, and generally they did okay. At least for a little while. But to kill an agent of the gods on earth? Even death wouldn't save you from the punishments they would inflict upon you. All in all, it was a pretty solid life insurance policy. And it was new for Rome, but nothing new for humanity. Ancient leaders throughout the world claimed divinity from one time or another. And actually, it's such an enticing argument that it's still made today. Even dictators in modern times claim to be appointed, guided, or inspired by one god or another. So this was Diocletian's attempt at avoiding the issues of his predecessors. Well, it was one of his attempts at avoiding those issues. He had a ton of reforms. But Britannia, on the other hand, wasn't a part of it. And that's because they were striking out on their own, with their own shiny new emperor, Mausaeus Carousius who was now styling himself as Marcus Aurelius Mausaeus Carousius, of course. So it's 286, and Carousius has established a separate empire in Britannia. He was probably able to accomplish this because, well, operating under a separatist emperor was nothing new for the province. And besides, the empire was unstable, the emperor wasn't popular in the region, and the legions were mostly non-Roman. Wait, Diocletian wasn't popular? Really? But this was before he decided to start massacring Christians. So what was he doing now? Well, the problem here is that Diocletian was a soldier at heart. 
He was obsessed with discipline and organization, and he needed to impose strict taxes in order to overhaul the defenses that he saw as lacking. So in addition to monkeying around with the coinage, which had already caused one rebellion in Britannia and Gaul, he was now seeking taxes, and he was quite strict and unwavering. Remember Pertinax and his adherence to strict discipline? And how the British legions loved him, and how well it went for him? Well, Diocletian was imposing ruthless exchange rates, taxing the bejesus out of the people, and spooking the British legions with his disciplinarian temperament. So yeah, he was unpopular. And Carousius probably took advantage of that. Not to mention that the citizens of Britannia probably had social reasons to join up as well. First and foremost was economics, and that goes beyond the coinage issue. The problem was that patronage was in decline in the Roman Empire, and that was how many citizens made their way in life. The decline had many reasons, but basically what we're looking at is a further centralization of money into the hands of a very small group of people, and so you just don't have as many people who could be patrons, even if they wanted to be. So imperial largesse was becoming more and more necessary. And it didn't take the Britons very long to figure out that it was much easier to cultivate imperial favor with an emperor who was in the same area of the world as you than one who was all the way in Rome. So on a very materialistic level, it paid to have a British emperor. And we can pretty safely assume that there were plenty of people who found themselves on the wrong side of one rebellion or another and wanted to get even. And there were probably plenty of people who wanted to go back to the good old days of Posthumus or even Albinus where they had someone nearby to keep the raiders and pirates at bay. Don't forget that the raiders were still a huge issue, and if this big Roman government couldn't keep them safe, what good was it? And as we talked about last week, Probus had the genius idea of stocking the British legions with rebellious tribes from the continent, so I'm pretty sure those Burgundian and Vandal rebels were just dying for a chance to get some payback against the Roman legions and they'd already proven that they were willing to cast their lot in with the rebellious governor. Additionally, Carousius might have argued that Maximian was power-hungry and spreading lies. You might remember from last episode that Maximian ordered the death of Carousius because he was allegedly embezzling, basically. Well, we don't know the truth of it one way or another. We know that Carousius was pretty popular, so Maximian certainly had motive to spread lies if it wasn't true. Don't forget that this is Rome we're speaking of, so rival claimants to power were not to be suffered. And Maximian couldn't rely on the fact that his claim to fame was basically that he was Diocletian's drinking buddy. I mean, that wasn't exactly going to get him through this. If Crassius was doing a better job in the West than he was, and he was more popular than he was, and given how unstable the Roman Empire was, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that Diocletian might drop Maximian and declare Carousius as his new heir. This is all speculative, of course, but it is possible. And if I was Carousius, I'd certainly be telling the legions and governors of Britannia my tale of woe. Hell, even if it wasn't true, I probably still would be spreading that story because it's a solid narrative and gives Carousius the air of the wronged party. Another way you might have gained the loyalty of the territories is through battle. Around the same time as Carousius' ascension, there were signs of battle at Ruxeter and Norwich. It's entirely possible that he crushed a Saxon invasion, and that the British legions immediately developed a man-crush on Carousius. So maybe that's how he got Britain. 
And there's another way you might have pulled this off, but it's much less exciting than any of the other suggestions I've made. You might have just claimed it, and then the people just automatically fell in line. The Roman Empire was anything but stable, and there really was no reason to believe that Diocletian and Maximian would last any longer than any of the other so-called emperors of the day. And when it came to legitimacy in this far-flung territory in the West, well, what exactly does that mean, legitimacy? Your average person in Britannia probably didn't even know who the current emperor was. And even if he or she did, the emperor was just a face on a coin, or an inscription, or a title being barked by an agent. I mean, they probably took the stance of, who cares who is running this damn empire? All I care about is getting a good harvest keeping my governor happy and his agents pleased, and keeping my family safe. Let those nobles in Italy fight their wars. I've got too much work to do to worry about that stuff. Or something like that. So all in all, there were plenty of reasons why Britannia would have wanted to support Carousius. And actually, there were plenty of reasons for Carousius to want Britannia, so it went both ways. Unlike Gaul, Britannia was protected by the Channel. So long as he had a fleet you could defend your lands pretty well from Roman invasions. And you know what? Carousius had a fleet. So yeah, Britannia was a pretty obvious choice for his empire. Not to mention that the territory was rich in material resources. In addition to mineral deposits, it was also quite fertile, so it could serve as an effective breadbasket for his growing empire. But anyway... The point is that while we might know why Carousius would want Britannia, there aren't any records of how Carousius obtained their support, so we just have to guess. So anyway, the Brits accepted Carousius, and now we've got this Belgic emperor running Britannia. Actually, this lack of records thing is going to be a consistent problem with Carousius' story. Almost everything we know about his regime has been pieced together from a few scattered references and coins, but we're going to do our best. So the new British Empire was largely protected by the Channel, the fleet Carousius already commanded, and by a fairly substantial land force that he commanded in Gaul. Hmm. Ruling from Britain but having lands in France. This might become a theme in the future. Anyway, you might be thinking to yourself, he had land forces in Gaul? Yep. How else was he going to deal with the raiders that were plaguing the area? And on the same token, the issue of sea raiders also conveniently created the conditions where Carousius would have needed a fleet. In fact, Carousius's naval operations were particularly successful and probably helped Maximian gain the title of Caesar in the first place. So, you know, that's kind of awkward. So thanks to the tasks that Maximian gave him, while he was still a loyal subject, of course, Carousius now had a pretty impressive force. Not to mention that his army and fleet would have been bolstered by any who decided to join up following the initial rebellion. And how big was this army? Well, he had his fleet, as well as any new ships he might have built in the meantime. He had two of the three British legions, a Gallic legion, foreign auxiliaries, Gallic merchant ships, and barbarian mercenaries. He was doing pretty good. But only two of the three British legions... Well, that's our best guess. There were a number of legions mentioned in coins during his reign, but notably absent was the sixth, Victrix, whose primary fortress was located at York. Now, York was a pivotal post since the days of Trajan. So what's going on there? Why didn't he have York? 
Well, we aren't sure. We're not even sure if Carousius didn't have York. It seems that, at least at some point, Carousius was ruling the north since there are inscriptions at Carlisle, but it doesn't explain what was going on with the sixth. Maybe it's just that they didn't come over to his side promptly, and so they weren't given the honor of a coin. Maybe they refused to be part of the rebellion. That's not out of the realm of possibility. Remember that not all the British legions were on the same side during the year of the four emperors, so maybe there was a split. Unfortunately, we probably will never know. But the fact remains that Carousius had a substantial force backing him up. So Maximian couldn't effectively reach the coast thanks to this large land force that Carousius held in his empire. And even if he could, the fleet would push him back. So once again, despite being in the middle of a rebellion against the world's only superpower, things in Britannia were largely like this. Oh yeah, the sheep are back. So Diocletian, divine Diocletian, emissary of Jupiter, had a problem here. He was divine and guided by the most powerful of the gods, right? So how did he lose Britannia and parts of Gaul to this low-born Belgic guy, Carousius? That would definitely get people asking questions about his divinity. And if they started asking questions... It would only be so long before someone did what Rome was best at, killing emperors. So Diocletian needed this rebellion to be brought to a close quickly. However, Carousius was popular, fantastically wealthy, and also in a powerful position. And then you have the issue of the fact that the troops were not immune to the lore of Carousius's empire. We've already talked about how the citizens had no reason to assume that Diocletian would be the last man standing. Well, neither did the legions. Not to mention that Diocletian was, what's a nice way to put this, ruthless. And it wasn't just the people and the legions. It might have been a worry that Maximian might not be immune to Carousius' charms either. I mean, right now you had an Augustus, Carousius, fighting with an adopted buddy of an Augustus, Maximian. What would happen if Carousius offered Maximian a better title, such as Emperor of the East? It's not out of the realm of possibility. There were all sorts of issues with this imbalance of power. Not to mention that Diocletian probably realized that the empire was just too big for him to govern. So he made Maximian and Augustus. And now there would be two emperors, one ruling the east and the other, Maximian, ruling the west. Provided he could deal with Carousius, of course. And now the war with Britannia was a conflict between two Augusti. And that sounds much better in a poem than Augustus versus Caesar. So Maximian was an Augustus. Was he also divinely guided like Diocletian? Yep, by Hercules. Remember that other emperor who claimed a divine connection to Hercules? Commodus? It didn't end well for him when he made that claim. But things had changed, and it seems now that the Romans were willing to accept it. So the Roman Empire was being ruled by two divine beings, or at least two people who were guided by divine beings, and that must have been fun. But it wasn't the case in Britannia. So Maximian, chosen of Hercules, was in a bind. One of his top guys was rebelling. Much of his initial glory was thanks to the efforts of this rebel, and the senior Augustus, Diocletian, wasn't one to tolerate failure. 
Not to mention that being Emperor of the West wasn't that great unless you held Britannia. And before you roll your eyes too much at my nationalism, hear me out. The West had already been racked by war for decades. The economy in the area was laid to waste. Except for Britannia. Britannia was doing just fine. So Maximian really needed to retake the island, if for no other reason than one of sheer economics. But there was a problem. There always is. And this problem was Germany. You see, since the time of Augustus, the army was intended to be as small as necessary for the security of the empire. Sure, there were standing armies, but that was largely accidental as a result of specific needs following certain campaigns. But the idea was that the armies would be kept reasonably small, just enough to handle security matters. Now this matters because among Diocletian's reforms was the reform to redirect the troops towards frontier service. And given the size of the empire, that would of course spread them out. That's fine, provided that there weren't issues on multiple frontiers at once. Well, turns out there were multiple issues on multiple frontiers at once. And actually, the issue with Germany must have been fairly substantial because Maximian had blinders on for the next two years. Yep, despite losing the breadbasket of the West, Maximian just focused on the Germans. Meanwhile in Britannia, Carousius was fighting a different kind of war. A war for hearts and minds. He was doing everything he could to legitimize his position and spread his influence. For example, Carousius would use phrases and imagery that would cast him as essentially a messianic figure who would restore Rome's golden age. Sound familiar? Postumus did the same thing. This sort of propaganda was plastered all over Carousius' coins. And as a fun side note, many of these coins were produced in London which was probably its first foray as a minting town. For Carousius, coins were effective vehicles for propaganda. Actually, one of his coins had an adapted quote from Virgil, Come, you who have been so eagerly awaited. The coin cast Carousius as basically a political messiah. Other coins refer to Carousius as Britanniae, the personification of the spirit of the island. Interestingly, some of the language on the coins was directed solely at the legions, so it seems that Carousius, like all post-Severan emperors and usurpers, spent a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to court his legions. So now Carousius was divine as well. I like to imagine Carousius looking at Diocletian's declaration of divinity and thinking, I can do you one better, pal. You're the instrument of a god? Fine. I'm the personification of the spirit of this island, and I'm a messiah. Your move, bucko. But he didn't just stop with messianic coins. As I mentioned earlier, he also adopted the name Marcus Aurelius Mausaeus Carousius, clearly attempting to tie his line with the beloved last of the five good emperors. He also put a lot of effort into defending and pacifying the sea, which made him much more useful to the coastal landowners than the Roman Emperor Maximian, which should be giving you deja vu again to the rule of Postumus and the Gallic Empire, since, you know, he did the same thing. And keep in mind that most of the wealthy land-owning elite of this time had grown up during the reign of Postumus and his Gallic Empire, so they probably had the same feeling, and probably felt like they were returning to the halcyon days of their youth. 
And even if they weren't overwhelmed by nostalgia, he could still appeal to their simple hunger for power. Britannia's elite were excluded from the upper echelons of Roman society. So why would they want to defend an emperor who did not see their value? It was much more to their advantage to support a local emperor who promised to restore Rome and give them their due. An interesting side note is that Carousius doesn't seem to have turned to any tribal imagery in support of his rebellion. Rather, it was purely classical. Keep in mind that this is only 230 years since Boudicca. But in those 230 years, Britannia had changed radically. And now the Romano-British were good Roman citizens as much as anyone else. And consequently, Carousius sought to be Augustus, not Caractacus. So Carousius was ruling his empire. But the thing is that he didn't want to be the king of Britain. He wanted to be the emperor of Rome. After all, he held part of northern Gaul, such as Rouen, where he minted some of his coins, as well as Britannia. He was ambitious. Now, I'm not sure if this ambition changed anything. Maximian probably would have tried to eliminate the rebel emperor regardless of whether or not he wanted to take Rome. But there was a delay in hostilities. Maybe Maximian delayed the attack on Britannia not just due to the troubles with Germany, but also because he wanted to negotiate a peace. But when he realized that Carousius wanted Rome, he gave up any hopes of peace. It might have happened. But it's something we'll probably never know. And regardless of the reasons for the delay, Carousius used the time to play upon local interests and consolidate his power. Eventually, the emperor determined that Carousius had to be killed. And now that Germany, after two years of fighting, was finally dealt with, Maximian would have his chance. So it's 288, or 289, sources are a bit confused, and Maximian is looking for some strike back. He gets a fleet together, and he heads out to stop his rebellious subordinate. But things went badly. Rome claims that they turned back due to weather. Carousius claims that there was a military victory. What's the truth of it? Well, as usual, it's hard to say. But we're pretty sure it didn't go well. Both sources, after all, agree that the invasion of Britannia didn't happen. But one thing that it's telling is that Maximian failed to take Carousius' powerful land and sea base at Boulogne. In fact, it seems that hostilities halted for several years following that failed invasion. So was it a military victory? Did Oceanus answer Carousius' call and batter the Roman fleet? Was Carousius just plain lucky? Who knows? But we can be relatively certain that the Romans were sufficiently battered because they tucked tail and seemed to have just retreated. Carousius, of course, used this opportunity to crow to his supporters. Clearly, this was proof that Carousius was divinely protected. Despite the fact that he was holding a small province and facing off with the world's only superpower, this victory, whether it was military or otherwise, probably gave his troops quite a boost in confidence. Hell, it probably gave Carousius a boost in confidence as well. But despite failing to retake Britannia, the Diocletian government was doing pretty well, and actually the provinces of Gaul and Germania began to recover. This was a bad sign for Carousius because it meant that this new government was there to stay, and that it was strong enough to even beat back the barbarians. I mean, that's a huge problem for our hero. Now, many of you have probably heard the name Diocletian before, so you're probably saying, well, come on, Carousius, what did you think was going to happen? 
But you have to keep in mind that Carousius didn't have our historical hindsight. Instead, he'd seen an endless torrent of failed would-be emperors. How could he have known that he'd have the terrible luck of rebelling against the one imperial government that wasn't a paper tiger? So what's a rebel emperor to do? He needed to do something to keep the loyalty of the people and the legions. Many of his supporters were probably more than a little disturbed by the fact that this Diocletian was still in power, and they were probably starting to suspect that they'd once again backed the wrong horse. So Carousius embarked upon another propaganda campaign, and he tried to utilize his position to force the two emperors to recognize him as a third emperor. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch since the British Empire was already run entirely like a Roman Empire, and Carousius himself had adopted a Roman name as well as all the trappings of a Roman emperor. And he was even a messianic figure which would fit in well with the Jupiter-Hercules thing they had going on over there in Rome. The reasoning behind this is pretty obvious. A usurper was only a usurper until he was firmly established and legitimized. And Carousius wanted to get legitimized. It's better that than fighting. So basically, Carousius was sort of like Postumus on steroids, except that, as I mentioned earlier, Carousius didn't want to stay in his corner of the world. He wanted to be a Roman emperor. And he started portraying himself on his coins as a third emperor sharing the burdens of rule with Diocletian and Maximian. And so he basically put all his hopes upon the gambit that the two emperors would rather let Britannia be ruled by a third emperor of Rome rather than spending the blood and treasure to retake it. But by 292, it seemed clear that his hopes were in vain and that the Romans had no intention of recognizing him. While he sought their recognition, they prepared their forces. While he minted his coins, they prepared their forces. It seemed that no matter what he did, they were set upon invasion. So, like Posthumus, he began to build forts along the Saxon shore. But the prospect of dealing with a strong Roman government was probably giving him the heebie-jeebies, so Carousius started to take an even more conciliatory posture towards the Romans. For example, there's a pretty cheeky coin that pictured Carousius with Diocletian and Maximian with the title Carousius and his brothers. But these coins and the propaganda didn't have any effect upon the Romans. Rome would have two emperors and two Caesars. Yep, we now have the Tetrarchy that I promised, so hooray. And Maximian selected Flavius Julius Constantius as his Caesar. Constantius would have quite a role to play as the story continues. So anyways, we've got two emperors and two Caesars. But really, for our purposes, all that really matters is that Maximian is Augustus, and then he has this guy, Constantius, as his Caesar. So now you have Carousius and Augustus facing off with an entire tetrarchy, none of whom were interested in accepting another Augustus, which would have required another Caesar, and creating a hexarchy. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. So Carousius and his propaganda had failed. It was 293, and war was coming. But it'll have to wait until next time. We'll pick up this story in two weeks' time. Next week, we're going to be doing the listener questions thing. So if you have any questions that you'd like to submit to me, uh, please do so. You can write to me directly at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can submit them on the Facebook site, facebook.com slash British History. We've already had quite a few submissions, and so if you'd like to get yours in, please do so. And I think that's about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>